0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. So, just by show of hands, I'd love to just take a quick poll to start our time together. Raise your hand if you love religious hypocrisy. Anyone? You love religious hypocrisy? Yeah, me neither. But that's the subject of the next 18 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to get Jesus' opinion on what religious hypocrisy looks like and why He rejects it quite fervently and does repeatedly throughout the Gospels. And while none of us think highly of religious hypocrisy, I think we'll find as we go through these 18 verses that there's an uncomfortable amount of it in our own life. And so uh, we are working through the Sermon on the Mount this summer, We've been through the beautiful Beatitudes and what it is that God blesses, what kind of disposition He is creating in His people, and it's totally counterintuitive to any other kingdom that we've ever been in. He then talks about, in Matthew chapter 5, going out of the Beatitudes and the persecution that will come as this kingdom engages the world's kingdom, uh, but the point of this kingdom in the world's kingdom is that there to be salt and light, a preservative, a witness in the world. Then the natural question would rise like, well, how does this kingdom accord with what God has said his people are to be like in the Old Testament? So Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. This is not a new plan of God. This is a continuation and completion, a fulfillment of the entire plan of God. In fact, I'm going to bring you into compliance with the law. And we saw that last week where he said, your righteousness must be greater than that of the Pharisees and you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And so we were... We dealt with a lot of uh, intense heart surgery from God, from Christ Himself through this sermon last week as we thought through that the law needs to be pressed deeper into our hearts, that we need to not look for loopholes, that we need to be not just be content with not murdering people, but actually deal with our anger. Not just be content with not committing the act of adultery, but actually root out lust in our heart, cut off our hands, pluck out our eyes if we need to. We need to not be content with just the fact that um, that we've done the right paperwork, therefore we're okay, um, breaking covenant, marriage covenant, but no, be a covenant keeper. Just because you've kept the most important oaths but been untruthful in the other oaths doesn't mean that you've kept the law. Like You're to be people who are people of truth, dealing with anger, dealing with lust, being a covenant keeper, being a truth teller, being a person not prone to retaliation, someone who's willing to absorb, your disposition is to absorb wrongs and not to up the ante with retaliation and to not just love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but actually love and pray for your enemies and be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We saw that this kingdom is calling us to a high standard, but in Christ we meet the standard. And then He transforms us into, by sanctification, into conformity with that standard, and we look forward to the day when we will be glorified like Christ, and we will be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And so today, I guess you could look at this chart, we looked at this last week, uh, my middle school boys, you guys are masters of this, I could have one of you come up and talk about this because I've been talking with you about it, but uh, sorry that's kind of blurry, it looks better on my computer screen than when it gets here on the TVs, but, but this idea, I think what Jesus is doing is that um, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the people that he's talking to have had, a, had, a, had the idea of, 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 their idea of God's holiness has been far too low, that God's just Worried about them keeping the rules technically, but not concerned about their hearts. And then they've been pretending to be more righteous than they are. And what we find is that Jesus is now splitting that gap quite a bit. God is far more holy than we could ever imagine. And we are far more sinful than we could ever imagine. And as we're seeing that happen, as he applied the law to us last week, we're seeing that now we have a temptation. That as we see the gap between what God's standard is and who we are, we have a temptation. We have a temptation to pretend that we're not as bad as we are, which is exactly what we just saw last week. They were pretending to keep the law instead of really letting the law do the work in the heart. And they were feeling good about the fact that they were technically keeping the law on the outside, but not actually keeping the law in their hearts. And so Jesus blows up their pretend righteousness, just totally blows it up. You're more sinful than you think. Today, Jesus is going to address what it looks like to perform because he's going to talk about the hypocrites and how they perform. You can go back for just a second. How there's now a temptation that God is so holy, we must perform. We must do religious acts to perform before him. So we're always tempted to either pretend or perform. And what happens is that we really don't need a very big gospel then. We really don't need Jesus very much. If this is the kind of kingdom where we're really not that bad, and God's really not that holy, then a little bit of pretending and a little bit of performing and we're good. And Jesus is just totally deconstructing that worldview so that we'll need a big Christ. We'll need a lot of grace in a truly different kingdom from the kingdoms of the world. So that's what's happening today is we're going to get the blow up. We got the blow up of the pretending last week. Now we have the blow up of the performing, performing and acting more religious than you really are. And so if you'll look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, let's read them together. You can listen while I read and follow along. It's not, I don't think it's on the screen, so you'll have to look on your own words there or just listen. Here's what he says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. For if you forgive others their their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. We saw last week that primarily how we treat others was in view. The second table of the law, the second half of the commandments related to how we treat one another, anger and revenge and oath-keeping, how we how we treat one another is important to God. Here we see what is our vertical relationship with God. What is the motivation for our giving before God, our praying, our fasting before God is our goal To please God or to be seen by people. So the title of our sermon today is Be Genuine Before God. And if I were to summarize the whole sermon in one sentence, okay, here we go. It would be replace performing religion before people with genuine religion before God. Replace that. Replace performing religion before people with genuine religion before God. That's what verse 1 tells us. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You're to live quorum Deo, before the face of God. Your righteous deeds, your Christian behavior, your piety is to be Godward focused, as if He is the only one who sees. In fact, arrange it in such a way that He is the only one that sees a lot of it. We find that religious living is dangerous because we have a self-exalting instead of God-exalting hearts. We will take what's meant to be for our good and His his glory and make it about our good and in in view of others, for the glory that comes from others. Jesus says, beware. Beware. This is dangerous. Religious living is dangerous. A continuing contrast happens between the Pharisees and the righteousness they taught in chapter 5, and now the righteousness that they perform before others. There's a contrast between the way they do it And what is assumed then by watching them, because these are the godliest people anybody knows, right? These are the standard. And we can then watch them and assume that God is looking for this kind of person, the big showy performative religious person. And then we get Jesus who comes and brings a grenade to that whole idea. He goes, no, actually the kingdom is all about something else. And those whose religion is purely performative, they have no reward in the kingdom. None. They're not in the kingdom. So we have the stakes really high here. We have the stakes really high, and I think Jesus gives us three areas that are, I think are representative. It's not less than this, giving, praying, and fasting, but it could be applied, I think the principles could be applied to more, to serving and evangelism, worship. I think We could think of other things that I think the principles that Jesus is laying down here are not meant to be exhaustive to these three areas only, but they have to be applied to at least these three areas, right, as representative but not necessarily exhaustive. I want you to notice the reason we're doing all 18 verses here is because there's a pattern that repeats three times. It's a fourfold pattern, and here's the pattern. First, Jesus tells us what the hypocrite's religion before people looks like, and then he gives you the reward that they get for that, because there is a reward. You want something, you'll get it. By contrast, what he is wanting you, the religion, your religion before your father, what it's supposed to look like, And your reward that will then come from your father. See the difference? That contrast is going to happen. He's going to work that fourfold cycle three times. And I just want to walk us through that uh, with this pattern here. So, first of all, verse 2. Well, actually, he says, uh, he talks about the hypocrites, right? Hypocrites, just in Greek, means actor. Someone who would put on a mask and play a role on a stage. Like, literally, that's the word. Is someone who plays a role. You know, like Tom Cruise in Top Gun. He can't actually fly an airplane like that. He's pretending, right? That's the idea here, is that there are pretend God-fearers. People who see church, see the synagogue, see gathering together as a stage that they perform on. And so they put on a mask, and they play a role. So the actors, the hypocrites. Verse, so concerning giving, verse 2, the hypocrites, the actors' religion before people. Related to giving, look at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do when the, in the synagogues and in the streets. So when the time to give in the synagogue would come, they made a big to-do, almost like blowing trumpets. I couldn't find any proof that they actually blew trumpets, but the idea of Jesus giving this picture of going, they make a big deal about it. Make sure that all those coins really clink loudly, right? Make way, the big giver, is coming through, right? He needs to get his name on a building. We're going to, he's, you know, he, he's, he's getting all of this regard for it. Uh, the, the thing that came to my mind when I thought of this is in the movie Aladdin. Aladdin gets transformed into the prince, and then it's make way for Prince Ali, right? Like that sense of going, he's pretending to be something he's not, and he's really got to put on a big show, right? He's got to compensate for the fact that he's faking here. And so make way for the big giver. Blow trumpets because the person who gives a lot of money here is coming through. When it comes to praying, verse 5, this is what the hypocrites' religion looked like, is really trumpeting, literally, their giving. Verse 5, when they pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, the actors, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So there was a call to prayer three times a day. And they always, the hypocrites are always looking to be in just the right spot when the call happens, right? So they're making sure that they're, if they're not in the synagogue at the high place where everyone can see and hear them, they just happen to be there when it comes out, oh, that worked out, I get the prominent spot, right? Or if they're not in the the synagogue and they're traveling around, they're making sure that they're on a busy street corner so that then when the call to prayer comes and they face the temple or the synagogue or wherever, they begin to pray, they're going to get maximum credit for it, right? So, if you've been to Watiki, you know that big bucket that fills up with water, and then when it starts to get to a certain level, the little thing, the little bell starts to go off, and all the kids swarm, and then they all kind of jockey to be able to get right where the water is. That's kind of the idea here, is the bell is starting to ring, it's time for prayer, and you got all of these hypocrites trying to get to the spot where they can be the loudest. And if you can just imagine them all trying to pray louder than each other, so that they can get the most credit. God's going, I, that's what it looks like. It's people elbowing their way in, to try to be seen and heard for their prayers. Verses 7 through 15 are a bit of an exception to the pattern here, because then what happens, we get to fasting a little bit later, but Jesus goes a little bit off script here, and in 7 through 15, he switches it to not the hypocrites, but the Gentiles, and then he doesn't talk a lot about rewards there, he talks about needs, and then he gives a the Lord's Prayer. We're going to look at that the next two weeks, actually. We're going to take that and we're going to kind of set that to the side for a moment um, and look at just the way the pattern works. And then we're going to look at the exception to the pattern because all of the pronouns in verses 7 through 15 are plural. So while he's talking about private prayer, he does not want us to exclude public prayer or gathered prayer. And he gives us the Lord's Prayer. All of these others, are the, the pronouns are in the first person when it comes to giving, that first section on praying and fasting. He's wanting you in your individual relationship with God, but he doesn't want to give you the wrong impression that you are not to gather to pray together and that the Lord's prayer is in the plural. It's not my Father who art in heaven, it's our Father, which presumes you're praying with people and you're considering your prayer requests in light of other people, Right? There's nothing individualistic about the Lord's prayer at all. So there is a time for private prayer, which we're going to talk about today. But don't, don't let that think that now you don't have a responsibility to your brothers and sisters, that you do have a responsibility to gather with your brothers and sisters and to pray with them, right? And he gives us a model prayer. So I think actually the exception, which we'll look at in the next couple weeks regarding prayer, um, gives a special emphasis and sort of pulls a lot of this together. So, but then we get to verse 16 related to fasting. And we see the hypocrites says this, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. We read in other places in the gospels that the scribes and Pharisees typically fasted twice a week. They would go a whole day without food twice a week. That was kind of the bar, the standard. That's what the holy people do. And what they would do is they, you know, as if fasting isn't unpleasant enough, they wanted to exaggerate it. So they're making their eyes look more sullen. They're moaning more when they walk. Like, it, you, you know, like, did you ever, like, exaggerate not feeling well so you didn't have to go to school? Right? It's that kind of like, oh, my stomach hurts so bad. Then five minutes later, you're eating popcorn or something, right? Like, you just, it's that, it's that kind of idea. It's, that it's not just that they're fasting, they are. It's not just that they're giving, they are. It's not just that they're praying, they are. It's that they're, they're exaggerating it. They're being hypocritical about it. They're actually, like, It's almost like they're putting on makeup to make it look worse than it is. Just so that people would go, boy, he's really fasting. He's really fasting. Look Look at that. Look at him. And it's working. It's this exaggerating of what's really happening. And so what we see is the hypocrite's religion before people is marked by impressive acting, public adulation, and it's all self-serving, right? They don't have God in view at all. They don't really... It's like God isn't really... God is being used as a way to promote myself. I'm not actually praying to God. I'm promoting myself and using God's name to do it. It's breaking the law, isn't it? It is making an idol. It's using God's name in vain because your giving, your praying, your fasting are for you, not for Him. And so we see what the hypocrite's reward is. And Jesus says the exact same thing three times, just so, we're not, just so we're clear of what God thinks of all three of these, which I think are representative of a whole lot of other things that we could do for the show of people in God's name, but it's really about us. Verse 2, the end of verse 2, related to giving, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Concerning praying at the end of verse 5, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Concerning fasting, in the end of verse 16, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And here's the good news, is that in this passage, everybody gets what they want. This This is a great passage, because everybody gets what they want. Like, if your religion is about getting the praise of people, congratulations, you'll get it. But you'll get condemned by God. But you don't care about that, so it doesn't matter, right? But, if your religion is for the sake of pleasing God... Congratulations, you'll get that too. This is a wonderful passage. Everyone gets what they want. High five. You want the praise of people? God will let you have it. If you want his approval, you also can have that too. So their reward is that they'll be noticed, they'll be admired, they'll be praised by people. God goes, that's what that deserves. That's all you get, right? That's your reward. So that's one category, the hypocrites. What their religion is marked by? what their reward is. Now we move to the other category and what Jesus says, your religion, your religious piety, your personal spiritual practices, what they're to look like and then what the reward comes from there. Here's what you are to do, Jesus says, if you want to be one of my, one of the kingdom citizens. I guess before we move to that point, remember verse one, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So just very clearly, there's no reward. There's no heavenly reward for this kind of piety, right? Jesus warns because it's a real danger. He's not just making up a hypothetical. You could be a hypocrite, right? There's a real danger to being an actor, and there's a real danger of missing reward. And Jesus warns us because there really is a true blessing for the genuine, and you really can have it, right? You really can have it. So this all kind of falls as a double-clicking on verse, cha- on verse 1. So let's go to the, the genuine. Your religion before your father. And notice that he couches it in the terms of a child and a father, right? The word father is used 10 times in these 18 verses. You're not coming to some distant deity you're not coming to some grumpy old man you're not coming to someone who's like got a checklist right you're coming before a father and your piety is going to reflect what you really think of God the hypocrites don't think that God sees don't think that he cares because they don't see him as father they're orphans they're orphans orphans are always trying to seek the approval of everybody while not really being accountable to anyone, right? That's the life of an orphan. An orphan just swings back and forth from trying to always try to manipulate and get whatever they can because they have no one looking out for them. And then when anyone is trying to take responsibility for them, they don't want to, ha- they don't want to hear it, right? And so, but you're not an orphan. If you're a kingdom citizen, you have a father who loves you, who cares for you, who calls you to live before Him for His approval because He cares for you. So, what does that then look like? Your religion before your Father. Verse 3, concerning giving. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. So, that's contrasted with blowing trumpets, getting everyone's attention with your giving. Now, your giving is such that if your hand had eyes or ears, they wouldn't even know. The money just flows so easily out of your pocket and so quickly that you're not even like using both hands to kind of count it and go, can I afford this? Can I do this? No, it just, it comes out so quickly. It's not tied to you at all. You give so freely because you have a father who cares for you. So if there's a need, if there's an opportunity to give, it comes out so quickly, so easily, and I'm not really even keeping close track on it in that sense. That's not to say there shouldn't be planned giving, but you get the, seat, you get the principle here, right? Instead of having to use both hands to really make sure that you're giving the exact right thing, go, May it just come out of your pocket so quickly that no one really even knows. In fact, your left hand didn't even, didn't even get a chance, like, didn't even know, right? And Instead of everyone knowing, man, there's a sense in which you don't even know how much you give, right? Because it's so freely given from you. It comes so quickly. You're giving to the needy, to your neighbor, to your church, to, uh, to others who are in need. When it comes to praying, verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and Pray to your father who is in secret. This is contrasted with bibl- bu- busy public street praying, right? Now you're going to go into your closed room and you're just going to speak to your father and no one hears about but him. No one hears about but him. It's not for other people at all. You're gathering and you're just having a conversation with your daddy, with your father. Because he's the only one that can do anything about your prayer anyway, right? right? So you're bringing it to him because he, he's the one that matters. And again, we see in verses 7 through, in verse 7, he repeats it again. When you pray, don't pray like the, uh, like the Gentiles. And he then switches to the plural form there. And then he says, Pray like this, verse 9, and it's all corporate. So this is not to say that we only pray in secret. We are to pray together. And then he gives us a model prayer on what, and we're to have the concerns of other people. We're to pray together as siblings, right? So there's a place for private prayer. It should be genuinely private in a way that's just between you and God. But there is, as we'll look at in the next couple of weeks, a place for public prayer that looks like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I think you should pray that way in secret too, but you're never just thinking just about yourself because he's not just your father, he's other people's father too. or siblings, right? So that's totally different than the person who's standing on the street corner praying about his, he's so much better than everybody else. He's competing with, his, with other people. He doesn't have God at his father. And he doesn't have kingdom citizens as siblings, not a Christian. And then related to fasting, verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may be seen and may not be seen by others, but your father who is in secret. So contrasting by making it look worse than it is, just be a normal person, right? (laughs) Shower like you normally do. Don't moan all the way through lunch while, you know, you're sitting at work. Oh, your sandwich looks so good. I wish I could have it, you know. Like, just be a person. Just, you know, just drink your water, have a conversation. Like, that's the idea is just be normal, right? Just be a person and uh, and let your fasting not be something that you draw any attention to at all because it's not for other people. It's not really even for you. It's Because you're praying to God. You're spending some time going without something so that you would have more intensified prayer for God. You would turn your physical hunger into a hunger for God. So instead of making it appear worse, look better than ever. Look better on those days when you fast. Only God and you will know. But the Father who sees what is in secret will reward you. He will hear you. He will pray. He will be honored by the fact that you've done it really only for Him. So the religion before your father of a child with his father in this relationship to God is marked by secrecy, no scorekeeping, and God seeing, right? I think that's just straight from the text right here. And what's the reward you'll get from your father? Your father sees that instead of being like showy and being about people and you kind of using him to promote yourself, what if you had no self-promotion at all, at all? and you were simply communing with your Father. You were simply obeying and living for your Father. What would be your Father's response? He's not impressed with this. No reward for this. They're cut out of the will. They don't get any of my attention. They get, they get what they get from people. That's it. What do these people get? What, do, what does your reward, what is it that you get? Well, in verse 3b, related to the last part of verse 3, related to giving, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Your giving is not unnoticed. It's not uncounted by God. Let me give you an example. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Here's an example. I think it's on the screen, maybe. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Doing exactly what he's talking about, right? Everybody sees this. And then he saw a poor widow who put in two small copper coins And he said, so he grabs his disciples and goes, hey, do you see what I see? Calls his disciples' attention and goes, hey, I tell you, this poor widow has put more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Which one lives like God's their father? The one who's now totally dependent on him. That's what Jesus says, right? You gave some of your abundance. Jesus is like, I I give no credit to that. But the one who gave, what she even depended on, oh, I noticed that. And he's teaching them a lesson, right, on that. Comes to praying at the end of verse 6, your father who sees in secret will reward you. So we, we even saw a live version of that with Jesus, you know, noticing this woman. Comes to fasting, at the end of verse 18, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. It's the exact same thing. God sees this kind of heart that results in this kind of action that gets no credit in this life, gets no credit in this world. And God goes, I'm, I'm going to reward that. That honors me. Your fasting will not go unappreciated, but will be beneficial eternally. Let's look at this in terms of like giving. Praying, fasting, and look at another example in in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 15. See if you don't notice the relationship of praying, fasting, and giving in relation to the hypocrite and the genuine, all right? So just see if you can't see an illustration of exactly what Jesus is teaching in this one parable. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, And treated others with contempt. Here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. One who's obviously good, one that's obviously bad, right? One who's clearly in the kingdom, from our perspective, one who's clearly not in the kingdom, right? You can just tell by their behavior Pharisee, tax collector. Good, bad, right? In, out. And Jesus totally blows this up. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. The assumption here is that it's loud. It's a loud public spot. Like, he, he, he prays up and above everybody else. Okay, so this is not like he's by himself, like, privately. This is, like, by himself, like, up where people can see him. Like, I'm standing before you right now, right? Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes, God, of all that I get. See what he's featuring? Praying, giving, fasting, and he's doing them genuinely. Well, he's actually doing them, right? But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up, lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is what Jesus says I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other, meaning not justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, in this case, all the way to hell, right? And the one who humbles himself will be exalted into the kingdom. stakes are so high, right? It's not a works righteousness, this is what happens to a heart before God. One is seen. Your reward is that you will be seen and rewarded by God. The Pharisee is using prayer as an opportunity to trumpet his own righteousness, and he will be condemned for it. He's using God. The other one simply just wants God for God, right? He just wants God to be merciful to him. I just want to be able to call you Father. That's enough for me, right? That's the heart there. Uh, I do, if I'd had bulletins, this insert would be in the bulletins. That, I'm sorry, Leah, that was just a joke. <laughs> okay. If you want to hand those out, that's not her fault. I actually think I might have been the one that threw them away, to be honest with you, but don't tell anybody. Then. But it might have been me. So, Okay, so what I want to do is I want to just give three obvious takeaways, and in the hopes of this not being the longest sermon ever, I just want to give you this handout that's related to Just a biblical sketch of giving and a biblical sketch of fasting because Jesus says when, not if. So the new covenant is not abolishing giving, fasting, and praying because he still says when you do it, right? So the answer to hypocritical religion is not no religion. And so, just a brief, there's much more that could be said there, but those are just some principles as you think through going, okay, well, how do I line up now with what Jesus says is the heart behind these three items, of giving, fasting, and prayer. So just three obvious takeaways. Now I'm going to ask you to do two things at once because you're looking at the handout. I want you looking at the screen. And so here we go. Takeaway number one. I'll get to that handout in just a moment. Three obvious takeaways. Number one, being seen is spiritually dangerous. And intending to be spiritually seen uh, and intending to be seen is spiritually deadly. Right? So we have to be very careful about Standing up on this in front of you. This is a huge temptation right here to perform. This is a huge temptation up here. We have to be very careful. It's a huge temptation to lead worship up here. Ask anyone who's led worship up here. It's a real temptation to move to performance. To want people to think well of you. It's a real temptation to come up here and pray. Like to be in front of people is spiritually dangerous. Right? And so we need to be careful about who we let be elders. Who we have Preach, who we have lead worship. We need to look out for each other because this is dangerous to be seen. It's really dangerous. We can think of all kinds of stories of mega church pastors that all of a sudden fall, right? Because being seen is so deadly, dangerous. But intending to be seen is deadly. There's a way to navigate the danger and still be safe and still be humble, right? There's still ways to do that. But to intending to be seen is spiritually deadly, right? Stage is dangerous. Position in a church is dangerous. Your social media is dangerous because it's easy to want to be seen, right? Prayerfully scroll back through your social media and examine your motives, right? And take the Luke eighteen tax collector position. Not, I'm glad I'm not like those people, right? Is all of our trumpeting before people going? I'm glad I'm not like those dirty liberals. Like, I'm just like, you know, like, my righteousness, my works, my, I'm so much better than everyone else, right? Now, take the position of the tax collector. Go, God, have mercy on me. I have so much sin. Like, I have nothing to trumpet, right? I just want to be before you. James 4, 6 through 10, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I like to think of that in terms of his hand, right? If you're proud, God has no problem pushing you down, Right? But if you're humble, then his hand is under you. Do you, want your hand, do you want his hand on top of you or do you want his hand under you, lifting you up, right? He gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So being seen is dangerous. Intending to be seen is deadly. Number two. The answer to hypocritical religion is not no religion. Get that? He says when, not if. The answer is not, hey, because people give, pray, and fast like this, don't give, pray, or fast. He just never says that. No. That's not what he says. And the reality is that the reward is related to what God sees, right? What he sees in secret I think the problem is, is that all of us hate religious hypocrisy, and so there's just actually nothing to see. God's not going to reward something that doesn't even happen at all, right? He sees what's done in secret and then rewards it. We're not talking works righteousness, we're talking about the fruits of righteousness, right? The seeds of the gospel go into a heart, if that heart receives them, then it begins to produce fruit, okay? If it produces no fruit, then you have to wonder, is there something wrong with the seed? Is there something wrong with the heart, right? Right? But over time, it's going to produce this kind of righteousness. Don't practice your righteousness publicly. That's good. But some of us actually don't practice any righteousness at all. There's not even anything in secret for God to see. There's no serving. There's no giving. There's no praying. There's no fasting. There's no attending. There's no committing. And I'm just telling you, that's not better, right? That still gets no reward. There's more than one way to be hypocritical. There's more than one way to be hypocritical. Both are evidence of an unregenerate heart, that you're not a child of God, right? Again, we're not talking works righteousness, we're talking the fruits, the fruits of a heart that is, that is in love with God, that has God as a father that loves to serve him. This can be a form of hypocrisy as well, especially in a church like ours where you sign a formal church covenant, right, to give and to pray, and you don't. You affirm it verbally, you take the Lord's Supper, communicating to others that you're being faithful in the ways that Jesus outlines. And God would say, I see no giving, I see no praying, I see no fasting, no reward. So, has the gospel you have claimed to believe and receive produced any fruit of obedience? Is anything poking out of the ground that gives evidence that the seed's alive, that the soil is true? And if not, why not? What are you misunderstanding about what the work of grace will do? Honestly, it's possible. It's possible to in rejecting hypocritical religion essentially have none at all, right? It's like it's like it's like the gospel gets into our head and we can say the right things. We know the right answers. Hasn't quite reached our heart to where we really think God sees the secret. Sees our motives. And it has zero chance of ever like, getting to our hands, right? So for the hypocrites, they're giving us all hands, right? Hands and talk, no heart. But I think it's possible in reaction to that to just be saying the right things and not have it have the heart or the hands, right? But I think the gospel is intended to get our head, our mouth, our heart, our hands, all of it. Not as a show, but as a transformation. So just to twist the knife a little more here, Consider Acts chapter 5 in light of what Jesus taught. The church is marked by generosity. A man named Barnabas gives a fabulous amount to the church. It seems like it's purely because he's humble, he's gracious, doesn't mean to get credit, but people honor him. So then Ananias and Sapphira come up, and wanting to be seen like Barnabas, but not actually wanting to be faithful from the heart like Barnabas, contrive a plan, and we can just read it right here. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Big show, giving, right? If that was today, we would put their name on a building. How generous of them, right? What does God think of this show of generosity? But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? You want to know what the Lord sees in secret? He sees Satan in this act of giving. And he says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And I think it's connecting the Holy Spirit with the church. They're trying to lie to the church about the motives of their giving. And to lie to the church is to lie to the Holy Spirit. They're trying to deceive the church, and God goes, my Holy Spirit is in them. This is deceiving them. This is giving with trumpets. And I see it as satanic and as a lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You had the freedom to do whatever you wanted. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You didn't have to give any of it. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Isn't that weird? It's not the amount or even the fact that they give. It's what was going on in secret that is being called out as satanic, a lie to the Holy Spirit, right? So this is mind-blowing. This is terrifying. He says, you have not lied to man, but to God. And Ananias heard these words. He fell down and breathed his last. So God did a very severe act of church discipline, going, I will not have this kind of performance in my church, right? And Ananias was put to death because he gave a lot but the heart, the secret place, and God rewarded what that was due. The young man rose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. After that, after an interval of three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And He said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So I just think that's an illustration of what Jesus is saying, seeing what's in the heart versus what looks like outwardly and just exactly what God thinks of that, right? So hypocrisy is a big deal. Takeaway number three. Jesus motivates us with rewards. Now we're going to get to some good news, <laughs> right? Ugh. Fake righteousness damns. right? But genuine righteousness is rewarded. And look at the sweetness of this. Jesus tells us we'll be rewarded by our Father. He wants us to be motivated by rewards. I think there's some Christians that think that no desire for rewards, that so we should just do it because it's the right thing to do. And that's true. But God, like a good father, has many ways to discipline his children with warnings and with rewards. And God has seen fit to cause us to draw near to him with rewards. Your Father will reward you for this. It's okay to give wanting a reward from God. It is okay to pray wanting a reward from God. It is okay to fast wanting a reward from God. In fact, he's telling us lean into that. Jesus dangles the carrot of reward on purpose. Christianity is not opposed to desire. We're not Buddhists trying to kill off our desires. In fact, our desires are far too shallow. We'd rather have a few extra dollars in our pocket or get, have people impressed with our prayer as opposed to what God could give us. Like, if we could just trade all of our money, all of our prayer, all of our fasting for the blessings of God, we would do it all the time, right? If we knew how much God compensated for true righteousness, we, we wouldn't want to do anything else. And so, God is, Jesus is trying to cultivate in us a true desire, a greater desire, that's greater than, than money and fame and prestige, a desire for God. We're not trying to kill off our desires. We're trying to see them fulfilled in God. Again, he's a good father. He has many tools of motivation. He can and does use them to shape and mature us, and he's not stingy. We're not going to get to the end of our lives going, this is what I get for my prayers? No, he's generous. He pays well. It's like my kids going and mowing for grandma. I can't imagine how much they pay my kids to mow the grass. Like, I will quit my job pastoring and come mow for you, but... Because grandma is so generous, right? And your heavenly father is just that much more generous. So give and pray and fast because he compensates so well. That's a good desire. That's okay to pursue that desire, to be compensated by God, to be rewarded by God. John Piper puts it this way, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. Augustine, back in the 1400s, said this, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Fake religious practice never satisfies, which is why you always need more people to notice you. It will never satisfy the hunger, but one simple prayer in the closet with God is worth a million before crowds, right? Oh, it's so much more deeply satisfying. The Westminster Shorter Catechism the answer to the first question is this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So we give, we pray, we fast because our God is so enjoyable and this is a way to enjoy Him. And God says, it's just our little secret, right? I just have like this little inside thing with you and me. Only you and I know how much you give and pray and fast. And that's exactly the way I want it, you know, because it's just between us in a way that's not for everybody else. Jesus is inviting you to pursue your own deepest, greatest, eternal happiness in God. That's the invitation. Not just the stark warning, we hit that hard. But, oh, the rewards in front of you. Trade public piety and its praise. It's so cheap, it's cotton candy, tastes good in a moment but doesn't nourish. Trade no piety and nothingness for true piety, true religion that will make your soul come alive and sing and delight. C.S. Lewis says that we're far too easily pleased. We're content making mud pies in the dirt when we could be enjoying a long vacation on the seas. Oh, we're settling for such little things. If we just do public religion or we just do no religion, oh, my friends, there is so much delight in the disciplines. So, let me ask you this. Does giving generously in secret make your heart sing? It makes God's heart sing. And it can make yours as well, if that's your aim. Does praying fervently in secret make your heart sing? It makes God's heart sing. I love that. I can't help but reward that. Does fasting regularly in secret make your heart sing? Makes God's heart sing. Your Father, if He really is genuinely your Father, He misses nothing. He sees everything. And He compensates handsomely those who live this way before Him. So the question then is, what do you want? Do you want the praise of men? You can have it. Do you want the reward of God? You can have that. Through a genuine relationship with him, through Christ. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand, or pleasure, tra- pleasures forevermore. Your right hand gives without your left hand knowing. God's like, well, you should see what I have in my right hand. For those who come and pursue me, Me. So you can see the handout there. Just a few things there. This isn't meant to be a law. You know me. I don't talk a lot about giving or any of that stuff. So this is not meant to be a hammer. Or man, he's just always talking about money. No, Jesus talked about money, so I just brought it up. I just wanted to unpack, I think, the implications and illustrations in the scriptures of what I think Jesus is saying. But if you want to kind of dig into there, you can kind of see in the Old Testament the mandatory tithing to God. The Old and New Testament are a little bit different in some ways. The Old Testament, there was no government social system. So the people were, in a way. So in some sense, um, so, so there's, I'm not trying to lay any law on you here, but just trying to give you a brief sketch of things to think about. They're going, okay, what should we do? What should we pray about doing individually or as families? And so you can see that the conservative estimate is that 25 to up to 40% of the earnings was committed to caring for the poor and for the religious uh, community. Um, that's not even counting the sacrifices that you would then bring and what that might cost you. One-tenth to the Levites every year, one-tenth to the festive celebration, so less 20% there. Another tenth every third year to the poor, so 23 and a, half, and a third percent just off the top. Additional requirements, leave what grows of itself in the seventh year. So every seventh year, you Sabbath, right? So, so that's just meant to be left. You're not to take that. So every seventh year, you give your whole essential income, right? And then you allow sojourners, actually your neighbors, to satisfy their hunger. So essentially, your pantry is just supposed to be open. And the rule is, is they can't bring a basket. They can take what's in their hands if they want at any time, and you can't. So there's just sort of this openness to each other that you're going to help each other out. And if you're hungry and you need something, uh, the the door's unlocked. Take what you need. Leave the corners and the gleanings for the poor. So the corners of your field, you're to leave those for the poor. If you're loading up some of your grain and you drop some of it, don't pick it up. Leave that for the poor. So that's in addition. Debt release for the poor every seventh year. I, I think that's right. You could double check that if I got that wrong there. And then on top of that, there's free will offerings, a whole bunch of them, and the sacrifices, like whatever your animal costs you to give. So that's a conservative estimate of what, in the old covenant, part of being the people of God required of you. In the new covenant, where we have better promises, the average American Christian gives about 2.3%. Only 10 to 20% of Christians in America give at least 10% of their income. Now, those that do give 10%, 77% 77% of those who do tithe tend to get up to 20% pretty quick. So it's pretty amazing how, I don't know that there's a law on tithing, but it's sort of fascinating that very few people that once they hit the 10% mark stay there, they jump up to 17, 20% pretty quick. It's like, it's like God rewards, which I think I read somewhere. God rewards faithfulness. So that's not to get into sort of a prosperity gospel. I'm not trying to do, don't, don't, don't hear me saying more that I'm intending to say, I'm just trying to lay out for you. Principles, First and Second Corinthians are so helpful, and some, 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 some suggestions there that you can take or leave. This is between you and God, this is between you and him, secretly, as you think through the secrecy of your own heart and what you want the Father to see. On the other side is fasting, just examples in the Old Testament, there's only one annual fast, um, so this was actually far less, um, um, there was far less instruction on this But there's other occasions in war or threat of war that they fasted when loved ones were sick, when loved ones died, when they sought God's forgiveness, when facing danger, to commemorate certain calamities as a point of remembrance is to fast a meal for spiritual purposes. It's not just intermittent fasting to to lose 15 pounds. This was going without a meal and then turning that desire for food into an intensification of prayer and a hunger for God. Examples in the New Testament: Jesus fasted in the time of temptation, and I would argue he actually fasts sleep as he prays through the night before he picks his disciples. So Jesus fasts more than just food. I think fasting can be more than food; it's primarily food, but fasting also can be. I think Jesus fasted sleep. What if you fasted a day off to give to prayer? What if you, yeah, fasted a vacation day? Like you'd use it to go fishing. Why not use it for prayer? What if you fasted some social media, or you fasted uh, something else? Um, I think those are potential God-honoring ways. Jesus foretold a time when his disciples would fast because he was criticized because his disciples were not fasting. He's like, well, now's the time for feasting. The Messiah's here. Like, you don't fast at a wedding. You feast, right? The bridegroom's here in this sense. Right now, Jesus is here. The Messiah's here. But there'll be a time when my people will fast. So fasting was, I think, intended by Jesus to be carried out by his followers. The early church fasted. Acts 13, Acts 14. And primarily it's food. Like typically it was fasting a day's worth of food. It's typically just a one day, but you could fast just a meal. But the idea is for, it's, it's for spiritual purposes. It's for spiritual purposes to intensify your prayer. First Corinthians 7 talks about husband and wife not sleeping together for a time to devote themselves to prayer. But it says just temporarily because it's a good thing to be together. So there's, there's those kinds of fasts too, like sex. I think Jesus fast sleeping, you could, uh, I listed some other things. You could get creative in ways. It's primarily food, but I don't think it's just limited to that in order that you might give yourself intensely to prayer and, and using a physical do- desire to strengthen and bolster deeper spiritual desire and showing that God is your father, you depend on him. It's like, you know, I've got one kid, I won't mention which one, but just like picks out birthday and Christmas gifts for their siblings that's just way out of their price range. They just blow all their money giving to someone else. And I'm just like, well, we need to teach you a little bit about financial management, but there's actually something really good about that, right? They know their father will provide for them, so I'm going big for my brother and my sister. Well, you can't actually afford that, buddy, but I love the heart, right? You're not worried that you won't be cared for, you know, so give, pray, fast. And so I can go without a meal of food because I know that my father will care for me, right? I can go without that, so take that for what it's worth. Let me close. So in conclusion, let me ask the question again. Do you hate religious hypocrisy? I mean, do you really? Well, so does Jesus. Very clearly, He hates it too. You want to read more about it? Read Matthew 23. You'll see how much He hates religious hypocrisy. And I would encourage those of you in here, that maybe aren't Christians, maybe you've been put off by Christianity because of religious hypocrisy, I would encourage you not to let hypocrisy get the double victory. Because religious hypocrisy will take down the hypocrite, they'll be condemned, but that would be a real shame in that seeing their hypocrisy, you miss the Jesus and ended up with no relationship with God and hypocrisy wins two people. Do you see that? Don't let the religious hypocrisy of others keep you from Jesus. Jesus hates it too, right? And that would be such a shame for people to miss Jesus because of the hypocrisy of Christians. And if that's where you're at, I would pray and plead with you. Jesus is no hypocrite. Consider him. He agrees with you about what ought to be rejected. He is the only remedy for your hypocrisy, for their hypocrisy. Those who worship hypocritically and those who do not worship at all are under judgment. Only those who worship God through Christ can genuinely be rewarded and will be. What a clever strategy of Satan to use the hypocrisy of pretend Christians to condemn not just them, but also repel others from Christ and condemn them too. Don't let hypocrisy win twice. Come to Christ. He died on the cross for hypocrites. He rose again for hypocrites. And He's transforming hypocrites who come to Him in faith. And so therefore, be genuine before God. And here's what happens the chart at the end. Why is there a timer on there? Did you put that on there, Steve? You trying to speed this up? Okay. When we get rid of when we when we get pretending out of the way, we get performing out of our lives. We then end up with a really big Jesus and a really big cross and a whole lot of grace and a whole lot of freedom. Right? Do you see how big the cross gets as we grow in our understanding of our own sinfulness? We grow in our understanding of how holy God is, and we banish pretending, we banish performing, and we get a glorious Christ to enjoy, and a good Father who rewards us. And so then we give, and we pray, and we fast out of the overflow of what God has given to us in Christ. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to pursue our joy in you. God, root out, convict us of any religious hypocrisy that might condemn us, Lord, May we be genuine from the heart. May we not just be mental assenting to truths and speaking them with our mouths and then doing nothing with our hands or being only hands with no heart. So, Lord, I pray that you would convict us of sin and not just a fear of judgment, but also a promise of reward. Lord, I pray that we would find in you all of the satisfaction. And because you're a good father, we are just so generous, so quick to come to you in prayer. So quick to give up something in order that we might pray to you. So quick to give up for the sake of others. Our time, our talent, our treasures for your glory and for our good. So Lord, we ask that you would do that work in us. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.